As we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew, we are in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 30 through 30. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Phil and Lacoste has got Bibles in their hands. They'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 30. Seventy-one? Seventy? I know, they got all, okay, all right, all right. It's all Don's fault. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 13, we read, Then the little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? So Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you that in the the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The title of my message this morning is Attitude is Everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your word knowing, Lord God, that you, Holy Spirit, are here to teach us and instruct us and all things. And so we pray that we would have open ears to receive all that you have for us this morning. We do pray, Father, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to be born again, they're not saved, they're not, uh, they don't know what it means to have their sin forgiven. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today? Thank you for our time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There once was a woman who woke up one morning, looked in the mirror, and noticed she only had three hairs on her head. Well, she said, I think I'll braid my hair today. So she did, and she had a wonderful day. The next day she woke up, looked in the mirror, and saw that she had only two hairs on her head. Hmm, she said, I think I'll part my hair down the middle today. So she did, and she had a great day. The next day she woke up, looked in the mirror, and noticed that she had only one hair on her head. Well, she said, today I'm going to wear my hair in a ponytail. So she did, and she had a fun, fun day. The next day she woke up, looked in the mirror, noticed that there wasn't a single hair on her head. 
Yeah, she exclaimed. I don't have to fix my hair today. (laughs) It's been said that attitude is everything. But what kind of attitudes should we have? If you're taking notes, I've divided our scripture into three points. We're to have, number one, an attitude of trust. Number two, an attitude of surrender. And number three, an attitude of humility. Our hearts, our attitudes. The Bible teaches that in this life, in the life of the believer, our attitude is just as important as our actions. If our attitude is not right in what we do, then our activity or our actions are somewhat worthless. And that really brings us to our first point, an attitude of trust. Look at verse 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. I love this picture. These little children coming to Jesus. I've had the opportunity over the last couple of weeks with my son-in-law Calvin being gone in Romania that I've had my granddaughter, you know, Madeline, home with me. And it has been so precious. There's just something about, you know, holding little Asher, holding my grandchild, that it's just, their simplicity, she's grabbing things now and looking at things from her whole new life. Go, oh, yeah, well, look at this. And it's just a little magnet on the refrigerator. Look at this. And she's excited about this thing. Everything is new to her. I love, you know, how children see things that we don't see as adults. Many of you that, that may be older might remember a man named Art Linkletter. He had a television show called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And one time he had a little boy on the show and he asked him what it was that his dad did for a living. Well, the little boy grabbed a microphone and says, well, my dad's a cop. And he rests crooks and goes after criminals and he spread eagles them and cuffs them and throws them in the slammer. Well, Ark Linkletter said, wow, your mother must be quite worried about your dad's work. He said, ah, heck no, dad always brings your jewelry and rings and earrings and all kinds of stuff. (laughs) Kids say the darndest things. You know, I don't think it's by coincidence that in the text of Matthew 19, as we've been studying it for the past several weeks, that we find that there's an order in there. There's the subject of marriage, and then there's the subject of divorce, and now it comes to the subject of children. It's no accident that we have children as it relates to marriage and divorce. Children are God's wedding gift to a marriage relationship. And children are meant to be raised in a home with a father and a mother. But then Jesus spoke about divorce. And let me say this, divorce is damaging to children. I'm not saying that God can't bless your children and help them through it, but you need to understand that if you choose to get a divorce, it'll be difficult and, and, and there's problems in the life of that child, even full-grown ones. But the Bible is clear. Children are a blessing from God. As I prayed for little uh, Asher, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Psalm 127, verse 3. And here we read in verse 13 that the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. Now, in the same story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 15, he writes, And they brought unto him infants. Uh, I like that. Little babies, little toddlers are brought to him. And in the Greek pronoun for, that he uses for they is masculine. In other words, the dads were bringing their infant kids to Jesus. I, I like that. Reminds us as men that it's our responsibility to bring our kids to Jesus and to raise them in the ways of the Lord. So here in verse 13, we have 
these men bringing these, their children to Jesus. Cute kids, little toddlers, precious little, little things hanging on their dad's arms. And hi, Jesus, you know, maybe reaching out for him. And he got the disciples in verse 13. But the disciples rebuked them. That word for rebuke in verse 13 is much bigger than just verbally rebuking. It has the idea that they are running interference for Jesus. Kind of like the secret service with their earpieces on their ear. Okay, no, we got kids coming over towards Jesus. Let's, okay, let's clear, clear the road. No, no, they can't come to him. They're forbidding him. That's what that word means. They are admonishing and sternly warning these men with their kids to stay away from Jesus. That amazes me. Because just a chapter ago, in chapter 18, we read how we needed to become like children in coming to Christ, have a childlike trust, independence, and the desire to please. Matthew 18, verse 3 through 5 says, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. And now here we have these disciples. Keep your kids away from Jesus. What did Jesus do? Verse 14. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. He teaches his disciples the importance of, of having an attitude of trust, a, a, a childlike trust in God. The word such, uh, in, for such is the kingdom of heaven, in the original language means a type of character or type of behavior. It's those that are like little kids that will find themselves making it in the kingdom of God, Jesus says. When we, we see this verse, when we think about this verse, you know, I think we can all go back on our minds and think about what it was like when we were kids. And, and to think about what it would be, would compel Jesus to say, you know, these kids have something that I wish more adults had. What is it really that the little kids have that we oftentimes lose perhaps as we get older? I know one of the things that, that we lose, that we can't lose as, we, as adults, is the wonder of the day. The wonder of the day. Man, I remember being a kid and waking up you know, and then having it be a Saturday morning and the day was just filled with endless possibilities. I remember waking up on the 4th of July when you were a kid and thinking, you know, like this coming Thursday, oh man, it's going to be a great day. I'm going to ride my bike and I'm going to play with my friend next door and then mom's going to barbecue and then we're going to have the fireworks and it's going to be so cool. Not like the fireworks you get out here. Fireworks in California, the little spin wheel, little sparks and little things like this. Real fireworks are out here when, you know, you can blow up the sky. But, but the joy of that, knowing that it was going to be a, a great day. I remember when that was all you had to think about. Not just on the 4th of July, you know, but every Saturday off from school, you had that, you know, to think about. What else am I going to do today? Baseball, yeah, I'm going to go to Palmetto Park and I'm going to play some baseball. Or I'm going to go, we're going to get the guys together, we're going to play some football at the park. Man, I'd be so excited for Saturday to come. I'd get up and get dressed and run next door to my friend Al's house and, and off would go. It was so innocent and so fresh and so pure and the, the wonder of the moment and the wonder for what the day had in store for me. It was exciting. But now, now as adults, we get bogged down with all of our responsibilities. And the wonder of our Saturday is, oh great, how I wonder how, what I'm not going to get accomplished today. 
I wonder how am I going to get the lawn mowed, the garage cleaned, and am I ever going to catch up on all this work I have to do? Listen, trust God. Maybe God has got something exciting for you today, some fulfillment of a promise for you. Maybe God is going to do something really unique. Think about having that childlike attitude where God may actually want to do something absolutely miraculous in your day. Maybe it's a day when you see someone come to Christ. Maybe it's a day when you finally hear of someone you've been praying for over and over again is finally saved. They're, they're born again. See, I believe that children have what we adults can lose over time, and that's just, just this childlike trust. Trusting that God is aware of your life and desires to interact with us throughout our day. Now, just as children are excited about their day, we too should be excited about what the Lord has in store for us each and every day. Here he calls the children to come to him, and they came to him. It's that simple and humble heart of a child that God so desires to produce in us, to build within us that relationship with him. You know, to, to trust him like a child trusts their earthly father. You see, you know, the kid looking at their dad, man, just he's just everything to him. I mean, he, he, he's, he's the world to him. I mean, dad's always looking out for me. I'm excited about what has dad has in store for me. It's going to be great. In the same way, we need to look to our heavenly father who can do no wrong, and we can trust him with whatever comes away, and he will use that for good in our lives. Well, that brings us to our second point, and the attitude we need to have, and that is number two, we need to have an attitude of surrender. Look at verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now in Luke and Mark's gospel, they let us know that this one that came to Jesus was a very rich Young ruler. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Here's a man with great possession, a man of great wealth. In fact, we, we are told in Mark's gospel that Jesus looked at this guy and loved him. I mean, he, he saw in this man a heart that was sincere. Here was a guy who's accomplished, you know, a whole lot at a very young age, what most only dream of doing in a lifetime. It's the all-American boy, the type of guy that most parents would love to have their daughters to bring home for them to meet. And yet in this single verse, we see that even though he was a rich young ruler, he wasn't a rich young wise ruler. In fact, he was very ignorant. He was ignorant in four areas. First of all, he was ignorant on how a person should be saved. Again, look at verse 16. What good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? What good things shall I do? He's a lot like people today who think that they can get to heaven by doing something good. There's so many people that are ignorant on how you get to heaven. Well, if I'm just, just a good person and, and they think by getting to heaven by being a religious person or doing something good for them is, is, is the ticket in. And they have the idea somehow in their minds that, that uh, when they get to heaven, there's going to be this giant scale and God has on one side all of your good works and on the other side, he's got all your, your, your bad works, and you're just praying, oh, I hope all my good works weigh out all my bad stuff. And God says, okay, let go, Gabriel, and boom, down goes all the good works. Hey, and I'm in. Great. That's not how it works. God is going to put all your good works on one side, all your goodness, which he calls in the Bible filthy rags, and then on the other side, he's going to put all the righteousness of Christ. Let me tell you what's going to weigh more. And when he puts Tom Humphrey on one side of the scale and Jesus on the other, there is no hope. Whenever someone says, well, I think I'm good enough to go to heaven. You need to ask him, well, how good do you need to be? Now, goodness is a relative term. Goodness is relative. You can always find someone you are better than. Well, I didn't kill anybody. Well, 
I didn't rob, you know, they, they robbed twice as many banks than I did, so I'm a little bit better than that person. Yeah, you're basing your goodness off of somebody else. But it's Jesus Christ who you need to look to. And we compare ourselves with the righteousness of Christ. None of us can compare. None of us can make it. So this guy's ignorance, has, he has the idea of what good thing must I do. The idea behind that is he was thinking of some stupendous, grandioso deed that he could merit eternal life with. Listen, we need to understand that there's nothing we can do to earn or merit eternal life. I think we all know Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith in that, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast. No one is good enough to go to heaven. You say, well, how do I get to heaven? Well, we get to heaven by taking the hand of Jesus as a little child. Unless you become as a child, you come humbly. You come in repentance, not dependent upon yourself, dependent upon Him and His mercy and His grace to save you, and He will save you. So not only was this man ignorant of the fact on how a person is saved, but secondly, he was also ignorant of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that Jesus is God. Notice in verse 16, he said, Good Master... And then Jesus responds in verse 17. So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Now was Jesus saying, oh, I'm not God, don't call me good? No, that's not what Jesus was saying at all. In reality, he was saying the exact opposite. Jesus was saying, the reason you're calling me good is because I am God. And there's only one God, uh, there's only one that's good, and that is God. He was trying to awaken this man to the reality of who he was. You know, you call me good, but do you realize that there's only one who is good and that's God? Do you realize what you're saying? And notice, Jesus didn't go on to say, and I'm not God, so don't call me good. No, he didn't. He didn't correct him in any way, shape, or form. Why? He just wanted him to know, do you realize who you're talking to? Do you understand who I am? Again, today people are, are ignorant in those same two areas. People are ignorant on how you get to heaven, and they're ignorant of, of, of who Jesus is. Listen, let me, let me go through this if, if you don't know this or not. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead. Just so happens to be God. He's eternal. He's divine. He has existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity past. When Jesus came into the world, He was God manifested in the flesh. He lived a perfectly sinless, holy life. Never sinned, never thought an evil thought. He never said a bad word. He never lost control. He was and is absolutely perfect because He's God. And he went to the cross and died for us. It was God reconciling the world to himself. That was God dying on the cross. And when he was buried, God was buried in the tomb. And it was God who rose again from the dead. And while he was here on earth, he was God and man at the same time. So he took upon himself humanity. He rose from the dead as a perfect God-man so we can lay his hand on God the Father and lay his hand on man because he is the the bridge builder. He's the, the, the mediator between God and man. That makes him the perfect high priest because he bridges the gap between sinful man and a holy God. Therefore, Hebrews 7.25 says, he also is able to save to the othermost who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's the Savior, he's the Redeemer of the world, and he lives to come again and take us to heaven for all eternity. And the only way you can be saved is through Jesus Christ. Nor the name given among heaven in which men may be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. That's who Jesus is. This young, rich ruler wasn't quite clear on how to get to heaven. He wasn't quite clear on who Jesus was. And the third thing that he was ignorant of, he was ignorant of the purpose of the law. Ignorant of the, the Ten Commandments. Look now at verse 17 again. 
Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Verse 18. We said to him, which ones? (laughs) So Jesus said, okay, I'll name them. You want me to name them? Here you go. Verse 18. Jesus said, you should not murder. That's the sixth commandment. You should not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. You should not steal. That's the eighth commandment. You should not bear false witness. That's uh, the ninth commandment or not lie. Then Jesus comes back to number five, verse 19. Honor your father and your mother. Then Jesus throws a curveball. Says you should not, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Then the young man responds in verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? I mean, could you imagine that? I mean, you're standing before the Son of God and he says, keep the commandments. And you say, which ones? And then Jesus lays out the commandments. You go, no problem, kept them. And he mentions the commandment and you go, you shall not lie, check. Not commit adultery, check. Not still, check, did it, done that. Yeah, right. No one understand. Jesus wasn't trying to tell this young man that he could be saved by keeping the law. Jesus was using the law for the express purpose in this young man's life to show him his sin and his need for salvation. It's kind of like when you go to the dentist office and they have that tool, you know, it's about, oh, maybe a little bit longer than a pencil. It's got a little pointed end on it and, and he starts poking around in your teeth and he says, tell me when it hurts. Does that hurt? No? Does that hurt? No? Does that hurt? Ah, oh, yes, that hurts. He hits that tender spot. You know what that's like. That's what Jesus is doing with this law. He's probing like a dentist, hitting the tender spot. And this kid is saying, I kept all the commandments. And Jesus is basically saying, no, you haven't. See, the problem was this young man viewed the law as something that was given to govern only his outward actions and not his inward attitudes. See, Jesus didn't immediately show him the way to salvation, but he had to first show him the law which condemns and shows us our sin. Jesus did this because this young man lacked the one essential quality needed to be saved, and that is his awareness of his own sinfulness. The young man first needed to be wounded by the law, and then he could receive the gospel message of the good news. That was the way it's supposed to be. But sadly, people come to Christ today, many flippantly, without any real sense of sin or without any real sense of guilt or remorse, any condemnation, without any brokenness or, or, or humility, without any understanding that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sinner bound from hell, and I'm, a, I'm lost without God, I'm condemned. No, they go, oh yeah, I'll try Jesus. Yeah, cool. I'll throw him in there with some other things I've tried, like yoga and, and Hinduism and everything else. Yeah, you know, Jesus is my best friend. Yeah, you know, I, I prayed that prayer. Yeah, I, I, you know, Jesus, yeah, I received him as Lord. Well, do you understand you're a sinner? Well, not really. I didn't look at myself that way. I just thought I'd try Jesus out. I raised my hand on Sunday morning. No, the purpose of the law is to show that we are sinners. It's not to make us comfortable. That is why Jesus shows us that the law was given not to just govern our outward actions, but our inward attitudes. Because when the Bible says, Thou shalt not commit murder, commandment number six, Jesus said, But I say to you, if you have anger or hatred in your heart towards someone, you've committed murder. I know it's pretty hard to drive around Springfield at 5 p.m. and not murder someone. I know. It's like the little boy who said, Mommy, why is it when Daddy drives, all the idiots come out? (laughs) Only when Daddy drives, not when Mama drives. 
You know, I have that anger in your heart and it kind of rises up and you maybe think, well, I've never murdered anybody. You have hatred in your heart, you have. The Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery, commandment number seven, which, by the way, still applies today. Jesus says, if you look at a woman to lust, lustful thoughts, longing desires, if you've entertained these thoughts in your mind, then you've committed adultery in your heart. See, Jesus was trying to use the law in its intended purpose, and that is to slay us. None of us are righteous before the law. The law was given and intended to show us our sin. The Bible even uses this illustration in the book of James. That the Bible or the law of God is like a, a mirror to us. And don't you hate those mirrors that have all the bright lights all around them and they're, they're, they're magnified to the umpteenth power? Every wrinkle, every blemish, every gray hair you see. I like the dimly lit mirrors, okay? You know, I don't look so bad. Then you go into a store and you're looking at a mirror, it's a thousand times magnification and it's got these bright lights on either side. You're going, ooh, you look bad. I wonder how many of those mirrors they actually sell. I, you know, I don't know. But to look at that, that you know, I need to get a new mirror. No, you don't need a new mirror. Problem isn't the mirror. In the same way, people say, oh, I don't like the Bible. I don't like the Ten Commandments. Why is it we don't want the Ten Commandments in our schools? That makes no sense. We don't want our kids to lie. We don't want them to steal. We certainly don't want them to kill anybody. But we see those and think of that. But, but then there's a, well, you know, do not commit adultery. Well, I don't know about that one. And, and, and we, do, we want to pick and choose which ones. I don't like that one. You know, uh, it's like, turn off that light. I don't want to, I don't want to see that one. You know, the Bible talks about riot. You know, those that riot, they riot in the night. Those that get drunk, they get drunk in the night. You're children of the day, children of the light. Walk as children of the light. But you see, again, the law comes and it exposes our sins. And Jesus is trying to use the law in its intended purpose. This young man was just not getting it. So then the fourth thing that this man was ignorant of, and that was this, he was ignorant of the priority of putting God first in his life. He was ignorant of the priority of putting God first in his life. Are these not the same areas that people have problems with today? They don't understand how to get to heaven. They don't know who Jesus was. They don't understand the purpose of the Ten Commandments, but they think they can keep them. And they don't understand that God has to be supreme in, the, in one's life and have first place in one's life. They don't get it. But I love Jesus' response. You look at verse 21. He says, if you want to be perfect, then go. Sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. That's one of the saddest portions of scripture in the Bible. Because this is the only instance in the Bible where man comes and kneels before Jesus and leaves worse off than when he came. The Bible tells us in another gospel that he turned to walk away. Jesus looked at him, loved him. He loved him. Now, it would be wrong to say that giving away all of one's possessions is the standard across the board, that it's for everyone. That would be absolutely wrong. Jesus doesn't ask everyone to sell everything they have and come follow him. There are cult groups out there that they'll try and pull that one on you. Sell all you have, give it to us, and, and follow Jesus. I mean, you figure that one out. Jesus doesn't ask every one of us to sell everything we have to come follow him. But let me say this. Jesus will put his finger on that area in your life that you have allowed to come between you and your relationship with him and following him. And if it's some possession, he may just say, get rid of it. If it's a house, he may say, get rid of that house. If it's a career or an occupation 
a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a hobby, a sport, whatever it may be. He may put his finger on that thing and say, listen, sell it and come follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. See, what are your priorities in in life? What comes first in your life? Does Jesus come above everything else in your life? Jesus is looking at this man and he loved him. And Jesus is saying there's one thing that is lacking and here it is. He lacked the full surrender of his heart and life to God. Let me say that again. He lacked the full surrender of his heart and life to God. He had self first and not God first. See, this guy may have been concerned about keeping the commandments, but he was more concerned about keeping his money. He had a bent knee, but he would not bend his will. He had a bowed head, but he wouldn't bow his heart. He had worship, but he did not obey. He wanted the heavenly treasures, but he couldn't give up his earthly possessions. He knew what he needed, but he refused to give up what he wanted. Jesus called him to sacrifice the present for the future, but he sacrificed the future for the present. So many people are doing the same thing today. It's all about what I can get, all about what I can gain now. Where are our values? Where are your priorities? Have you sat down and said, Lord, take my life and guide me and direct me and have your way in me? Maybe you're young, maybe you're middle-aged and you think, well, my temptations are, 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 are not the lust of the flesh, but yeah, I do have the lust of the eyes. And you want this bigger thing or this nicer thing or more of this or more of that. Where are your priorities? And when you get all those things, do you, do you then start you know, running into that, that pride? Look what I have attained. Look what I have. That's why we must make sure God is number one in our lives and He is top priority in our lives. Again, this guy seemed to have it all. He said he kept all the commandments. But you know, he broke the very first commandment which is to love the Lord your God with everything and have no other gods before Him. He had violated that commandment. His money, His possessions, His things had become His God. Listen, the guy had it all, but in reality he had nothing. He was asked to give up what he didn't have in order to gain all that Christ had for him. But he chose his riches over his very soul because he wasn't willing to give up that one thing that had his heart. Remember back in chapter 16, verse 26, Jesus said this, For what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's a story that is told of the time when the tomb of the great conqueror Charlemagne was opened. The sight the workmen saw was startling. That There was this body sitting on the throne like a chair, clothed in his most elaborate of kingly garments. But his clothes by this time were, were moth-eaten. The, the crown on his head was crooked. But on his knee was this open Bible. His cold, lifeless, bony finger was pointing to a verse. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Jesus looked at this rich young ruler the same way he looked at each one of us today this morning, with a heart of love. Not wanting anyone to lose their soul because of holding on to something else, anything else. I mean, what about us? Is, is there something, anything else that is first in your life above Jesus? I think about this. Imagine what it was like with the disciples watching this whole interaction take place. What do you think they were thinking? Now, let me use a little sanctified imagination for a moment. I would think that these guys were a little bit envious as he drives away in his you know, camel-powered convertible chariot, leather interior, spinning rims. They're going, whoa, look at that chariot. Man, that's a cool ride. Look at those spinning rims. And then when this young man said, what do I still lack? They would have been shocked. What do you mean you lack anything? Look at the chariot you drive. Look at the clothes you wear. Look at the position you hold. You've got it all. 
He was probably a ruler of the synagogue, so he was religious as well. Wealthy, a man of position, probably involved in politics. And the disciples are probably thinking, Lord, what are you doing? Don't let him go. I mean, you just lost the choicest disciple possible. They're, they're definitely thinking, man, we've got to talk to Jesus. Uh, we've got to get this guy back. And they see the guy driving off in that chariot. Oh, I wish, I wish Jesus would have asked him to stay. Lord, he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. Lord, why did you let him go? He could have funded this whole Jesus movement we got going on here. Probably freaking out. But I love Jesus. He, he sees this as another teachable moment in the life of his, his disciples. And he, he gets their, their heads out of the fog to straighten things out for them when it comes to possessions and, and how they view the world. This brings us to our third and final point. We should have an attitude of humility. Look at verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Surely I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. G. Campbell Morgan, in his commentary on this section of scripture, he says this. He says, in Jerusalem, all commerce would stop when the gates of the city of Jerusalem were closed on the Sabbath day and every evening at sunset. Commerce stopped because camels and caravans could no longer enter. But there was a little gate called the Needle Gate that was actually a gate inside one of the main gates. It could be opened to allow access and egress to only one person at a time. The only way a camel could possibly get through the Needle Gate would be if all of the baggage was removed from his back and if he crawled through the gate on, his, on its knees. Now, I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, if he's saying that, you know, there's a way to work your way to heaven, that's not the way to do it. You know, but if he's saying... Hey, you got to get down on your knees in humility before God. Repent of your sin. I could see that be the case. But here's the thing. Uh, uh, the, the, in the Gospel of Luke, when he tells a story, Luke uses the word for needle. He uses a, a surgeon's needle, like one used for, for doing stitches. Not a needle in a doorway. He narrows the word so specifically because, after all, he was a doctor, right? And so, so we do something very specific. It was a surgeon needle. And I believe Jesus is talking a literal eye of the needle here because look how the disciples respond. Look at verse 25. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? That's impossible. How can you get through an eye of a needle? Verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Salvation by what we do, is impossible. That is, it's impossible for man to save his own soul. As far as man is concerned, nothing man can do will save his soul. It's only God who makes all things possible. It's only God who does the work in a person's heart and life and attitude that says, I surrender to you, God. I'm sorry for my sins. I repent. I give you my life. Now, I love what happens next. I love this. It's another then Peter moment. We talked about this last time. Verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? <laughs> I love that. Now, Peter, he finally gets what Jesus is saying. Oh, I, I get it, what you're saying. You want all of us. You want total surrender of our lives. The rich young ruler wasn't willing to give you that. We left everything. What about us? And I love that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus said, you want to know about you guys? Look at verse 28. So Jesus said to them, as surely I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Basically, Jesus says, Peter, you can't outgive God. You've given me your life. That's awesome. That's great. Wait until you see the rewards that are going to be coming your way in glory. In other words, you can't not outgive God. God will never be a debtor to you, Peter. What Jesus is saying in verse 30 is that those that the world looks at and says, wow, man, man you, you're first. When they get to heaven, they may be last. And those that the world looks at and says they're last, when we, we get to heaven, they may be first. And so often, you know, we're so ready to envy the world. Oh, gee, look what they have. Man, look, look at that, man, what they've got. We're just humble followers of Jesus. Hey, you'll get your reward. The Lord will bless you. You may be viewed as last now, but you will be first then. May the Lord help us not to envy the wicked or the prosperity of the foolish, but instead to get our eyes on eternity, to set our eyes on the things of God, to seek for His righteousness and His kingdom. He will take care of the rest. Let me say as we close that most of you here this morning are born again. I think most of you have given your life to Jesus Christ. You've been walking with the Lord for quite some time and you've been focused on those things in your walk that are important to your spiritual growth, your, your development. Maybe you're in the Word every day. You're, you're consistent in prayer. You're even involved in ministry, the children's ministry, no less. And that should count for something, right? Perhaps as you read the story and are considering the scene of the rich young ruler, you realize that you don't have this rich young man's problem. You don't have another God in your life before the Lord. But at the same time, you understand that the yearning that he had to experience more in this life. To be childlike in our faith. And to trust and to be excited about the wonder of the day. Maybe you're feeling like you hit a plateau spiritually. Maybe you're feeling a little stagnant spiritually and there's this yearning in your heart for more of Jesus. Yeah, you have all the basics covered, yet at the same time you feel something is lacking. You don't have any other gods before you, but, but there's an area where Jesus has been showing you maybe to lay aside and come follow Him. Perhaps the Lord is showing you that He wants to do some great things in your life, but you're holding on to something that is keeping you from experiencing all that God has for you. Maybe it's simply as just God calling you to, into a deeper relationship with Him, asking you just to get up a half hour early in the morning and spend time in His Word and in prayer. Maybe the Lord is saying, follow me into an area of ministry or mission field or GASP, the children's ministry, VBS. Maybe the Lord has been showing you some areas where you're still a little too self-reliant like this rich young ruler. And the Lord is saying to you, let it go. Surrender it to me. But you're still holding on to it. Listen, you need to have an attitude of surrender. Maybe it's a relationship that needs mending. And Jesus is saying, follow me and die to yourself and try to make it right. Have an attitude of humility. But every time that the Lord says to walk this way and follow me, you're staying put. And the result is that Jesus is not able to do that work in your life that he desires to do. What Jesus, uh, what, is, what is it that Jesus is saying to you to surrender your claim to, to humble yourself and come and follow him in? Vance Havner has said this, the problem is if people do not mean business with Christ, then they will not do business for Christ with their hands. We need to mean business with Christ. 
And again, if in the life of the believer, our attitude is just as important as our action. If our attitude is not right, then our actions will suffer. So we must come to Christ with complete trust. We must come to Him in an attitude of total surrender. And we must come to Him in an attitude of humility. And Jesus says you'll receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. Thank You for Your Word. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to give their heart and life to You, they're not born again this morning. Lord, the, the law, the commandments show that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Lord, no matter how the scales come out, Lord, we are way too off. There's no good work that we could do to inherit eternal life. The only way to come to eternal life is to come to You in faith. Believing, Lord Jesus, that You died on the cross for our sins, that we were sinners and we need to turn from that sin, repent from it, and that You will forgive us and give us eternal life. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here that you have not given your life to Jesus Christ? You're not born again. But you want to be saved this morning. You want to have your sin forgiven. You want to follow Christ. He's not asking you to forgive, you know, give up all your money. I, I don't know what he may ask you to do, but, but at this point he's not. We're not asking. He just wants your life. If you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, but you want to this morning, would you raise your hand this morning so I could pray for you? Anybody at all? Father, we thank you for your love, your grace. Lord, if there is any areas in our lives that we need to work on, Holy Spirit, we invite you to show us. Help us to get it out of our lives to follow you completely, to surrender every area of our lives over to you, to humble ourselves before you. Lord, we thank you that you saved us. Lord, that we're, we're free from the bondage of sin, free from the slavery of sin, free to live our lives praising you all on into eternity. And we do just that. We praise you, we thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.